Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a really exciting show for you today. I want to first say happy holidays to everyone out there, and uh, hope that no matter what it is that you're celebrating, you are having some time to celebrate with family and friends and get a little rest and relaxation. Uh, I also want to make a quick shout-out to a new, the newest, in fact, member of our ACRAC team, April Liu, who is now helping um, Dr. Brian Park with making the outlines for uh, some of our episodes. So you'll start to see outlines pop up on prior episodes, uh, some by Brian and some by April. So uh, I really appreciate her volunteering to do that. I think it makes it easy to scan through and find different parts of episode notes that you might want to use for studying or your own learning. Uh, And now uh, let's jump right in because... We have an incredible show. I'm excited to welcome to the show Dr. Emery Brown. Uh, Dr. Brown is the Warren Zapal Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School and the Taplin Professor of Medical Engineering at MIT. He's world-renowned for his work on how anesthetics work, how to monitor anesthesia depth, and the development of signal processing methods for neuroscience data. Dr. Brown, welcome to the show. Uh, Jed, thanks very much for having me. So I I asked you on because, you know, this question of how we monitor the depth of anesthesia, how we can get an idea of whether someone is deep or not, whether they may or may not have awareness under anesthesia. Uh, There's different ways we've been doing this for a long time, and uh, and we'll talk about some of that. And I want to just start by asking you, you know, uh, how do we, what does that even mean to uh, think about the depth of anesthesia and how have we monitored it over time? Well, that's a good question. So I think when people, just thinking clinically about managing a patient under anesthesia, they think about heart rate and blood pressure, and then they'll use concepts like MAC for inhaled anesthetics. And if if you have TCI systems like they have in Europe, we don't have them in the United States, then they'll use particular TCI target-controlled infusion targets to get, to, to deliver certain amounts of drug and then the understanding is that delivering drugs at this particular rate or at, at this particular flow will then create an, a desired anesthetic state. And that, that's all, and, and we, that's what we use empirically. And we use that empirically along with measures like, like, like heart rate and blood pressure. And they've gotten us through nearly the first 173 years of anesthesia, but I think there's a lot more that we can do. Yeah, that's that's what's I think very exciting, and and I'm excited to hear from you. So, um, what are the uh, you know when, what are the drawbacks? I mean, let's start there. When we think about, for example, uh, I think the most basic form. Uh, you and I were chatting before we went uh, before we started recording, uh, and maybe before we even had things like Mac was simply to uh, pay attention to a patient's physiology, to their heart rate, blood pressure. 
Yeah, no, we do. And I think we still do that. I mean, so, you know, the max sort of puts you in the ballpark if you're using an inhaled drug. And then from there, if it looks as if the patient's heart rate and blood pressure is going up, then you often make a decision to say, well, just speaking colloquial, the person is not deep enough, so I'll turn up the anesthetic. Or maybe if you feel that it's due to the likelihood that there's a nociceptive response, they may give more fentanyl or some antinociceptive agent. Or it could be the case that the person needs muscle relaxant, in which case, you know, you might decide to dose the muscle relaxant because, you know, you check your train of four monitor or you actually see the patient, you know, you actually see the patient move. So, but I, I, I think that, that what this hints at is if you, if you dissect MAC, I mean, MAC is a, is a clinical term. And if you, if you think about what it actually says, whether it's the, you know, the, the minimal dose at which 50% of patients would move. And meaning if you're dosing at MAC, then if it were really the case that it meant exactly what the way the de- definition is stated, 50% of the time when you're at that dose, people would move to a painful stimulus. Right. That doesn't happen. It can't be defined properly. It can't, excuse me, it can't be defined correctly. That, that, that can't be the definition. Right. And why is that? What, what have we missed? Is it, was it misdefined from the beginning or uh, why, why is that not the case? Well, I think that, you know, I, I think that if you, if you look at probably what it's doing is it's more giving you a reasonable starting dose for a drug. Mm-hmm. And then what, and then what we do empirically is we dial up or we dial down from there. The patient is younger, seemingly very vigorous. We increase the dose. The person is older and then seemingly um, perhaps more frail. We infer that we can decrease the dose. And there have been studies looking at how, you know, MAC changes with age. And even our, like on our anesthesia machines, they'll give us a recommended for age-adjusted MAC. Right. It's putting a lot of concepts together, which I think need to be sort of unpacked. It's, there's, a, there's a painful stimulus, there's some notion of arousal, and there's some notion of arousal being manifest by movement. Right. Those are the various components of it. So for me to get a handle on this, what I, the way I think about this, I think you have to first start with a good definition of general anesthesia. And this is, you know, there's no consensus in our field, but I'll just offer the definition that that I use. So drug-induced reversible state that consists of antinociception, you have unconsciousness, amnesia, immobility or akinesia with maintenance of physiologic stability. So those are the things that I want to achieve when I do anesthesia, when I provide general anesthesia to patients. And so then I, I try to think in terms of some measure of unconsciousness, some measure of nociception or antinociception, and some measure of the degree of akinesia or muscle relaxation, right? And so, so then I've broken the various components of anesthesia into, let's say, three, four, or five parts, and then I'm thinking of how am I monitoring each of those individually as opposed to something which just tells me the depth of anesthesia, sort of putting multiple concepts into like a single into like a single entity. Right. So it might make more sense to divide this and think about each part individually? 
Right. Exactly. I think it does. Okay. And All so right. how do we do that? Is there a way to monitor those things individually? Yeah. So let's start with the simple, the simple part. So for years now, we've been monitoring muscle relaxation. We've been using either electromyograms or, you know, more commonly the train of four. So that gives us some idea of the degree of relaxation. And, you know, when we should, when we see that the response, the train of four response, you know, comes back briskly, then we decide to, you know, um, redose our muscle relaxants. So, so there we've been doing something like this for, for many years. And we could do the same thing with EMG. Um, if you take unconsciousness, so this is where, you know, this is where I think the EEG offers a lot of possibilities because like what we've learned in our research and also in our, in, at least in my clinical practice is that the EEG changes very systematically with anesthetic drug dose, anesthetic class, and also the age of the patient. So you can, and then if you, from the research that we've done, looking at the neurophysiology underlying these various oscillations, these rhythms, we can we can come to develop a schema for monitoring the level of unconsciousness using the EEG in real time. So that that would, <clears throat> at least in, in in our practice and what we've been teaching and, and suggesting in our from our based on our research, is that it provides a highly reliable way to track the, the brain states of patients under anesthesia. So I would use EEG to think about unconsciousness. Okay. So for, for muscle relaxation, we have our train of four or our um, EMG monitor, and then for unconsciousness, EEG. Uh, and then what were the other components? So the other component, let's say with, with um, <clears throat> so no susception, that's the tricky one. So that's the right. more challenging one, right? So, so there, what we typically do is we use heart rate and blood pressure. And more recently, there have been some monitors that have been developed using heart rate and blood using heart rate and perhaps electrodermal activity, meaning the galvanic skin response, measuring skin resistance as a way of looking at nociception. But, but if we think about it clinically, when when we're not using the EEG, we actually use heart rate and blood pressure is an indicator of nociception. We see it go up. Like I said earlier, we infer that it's maybe we should administer more, more of the, more of the, uh, anti-nociceptive agent. If we think that the, the patient is probably perceiving nociceptive stimuli. And I, I should be, I should be clear that I'm drawing the distinction between nociception and pain. So pain is the conscious perception of information transmitted in the nervous system, which is likely harmful. You perceive that consciously. When you're under anesthesia, you're unconscious, so the information can still be transmitted, but in that condition, we call it nociception. And so drugs like the opioids, when, when administered under, when someone's under general anesthesia, are providing anti-nociception. So that's what, that's what I'm referring to. So we can monitor that uh, through a variety of ways that we already do, paying attention to the heart rate, blood pressure, the galvanic response, as you said, and, and that's a reliable uh, way to do that? Well, um, I, I think the jury's out as to whether or not it's completely reliable. It's, it's what we do at the moment. I, I would say, you know, I think less progress has been made on coming up with a monitor of nociception during surgery than there's been in pro than progress, compared with the progress that's been made in using the EEG to monitor the level of unconsciousness in patients receiving anesthesia, general anesthesia. 
Right. And when you think about uh, these are somewhat related, I would think, in the sense that if someone is experiencing, uh, you know, intense nociception, uh, then that may uh, decrease their level of unconsciousness, which you would then see on the EEG. Is that right? Exactly. That's exactly right. So um, so you can imagine, you know, a couple of you know sort of scenarios where one is you. Some, you know, the surgeon makes the incision and you have an infusion of propofol running or you have sevoflurane being administered. And with the, with the incision, you see the heart rate and blood pressure go up. But let's say the EEG doesn't change. So in that particular case, the nociceptive stimulus was certainly being processed by the nociceptive system in the auto, and you're seeing an autonomic response. But the person is, there's not an arousal response. And you can just take the other case where now, it's so, the stimulus is so potent that the person is now actually, you see them coming too. Uh, you see the EEG changing, suggesting that, you know, there's an arousal effect. So in, in that case, in addition to administering, let's say, fentanyl, you might want to administer some more propofol, turn up the sevoflurane. But, but I think really thinking, like, what is really the cause of the physiological response allows us to dose the anesthetics in a much more principled way. Right. Uh, and so uh, there's also this interesting question, and I'm not sure there's an answer, uh, but I'm uh, interested to hear your thoughts, is that if, it, if nociception is being experienced, but it does not produce an arousal, you know, is that something that needs to be treated? So nociception is being, well, so I, I, think, it, I think it does because, so if we go back, we, we move away from patients under anesthesia for the moment, and we just go back to pain. Pain is there for a reason. Pain is there to let you know that there's something which is potentially harmful happening to you. And, and with, that, with that harm, the body mounts a whole, you know, mounts a whole series of responses. We, the no-stuff information is transmitted. You actually have an inflammatory response. You have a stress response. And to think that just because you couldn't perceive it, those things didn't happen just isn't the case. That's just not the way physiology works. Okay. So in other words, so I, it's important to, to appreciate that you can say, okay, well, he's unconscious. Well, so let's just do that Gedanken experiment. So do an operation where, you know, you have, let's say you do an open, you do a laparotomy, you just did it under propofol. I don't think it's a re unreasonable conjecture to say that, the person will probably wake up from that screaming, you know, his or her brains out. Sure. Right. And while they were, while they were under, while they were unconscious, right. They, we, they couldn't tell us that that was happening and very likely they didn't perceive it because, and just to be, just to, just to sort of, uh, to, to make, to, to state a, a state in which we would be certain of that. Let's say they were in birth suppression. They had an isoelectric EEG. So we're, we're convinced they're unconscious. Right. Right. But the nociceptive information was still being processed. And the evidence of that is that they wake up screaming once the surgery is over. Right. And so, uh, I guess the, um, the stress response was happening and there may be, uh, I mean, one, one alternative, of course, you could imagine would be to give, your fentanyl or your Dilaudid or whatever you're going to do right before the patient, you wake the patient up, in which case they might not wake up screaming. Um, 
but but again, what you probably want to do is treat it all along. I mean, because remember, remember that it, remember. So there are three things that happen. There's no susception. There is there is inflammation and there's stress. Right. So it sounds like you're saying that's those that stress response that um, uh, inflammation and stress response that may be happening and causing harm, even though the patient can't perceive it, and that's why you might want to prevent it all along. Right, and the nociception as well, right? Because remember, you that it, it's transmitting and telling you that you know you tore tissue, or that you know you've opened, you know, um, y- you know you you have you know severed, you know maybe some nerve endings or these sorts of things, and that signal is not just going to disappear or pretending like it's not happening because the person isn't perceiving it consciously is doing a disservice to the patient. Right. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so we have, we've talked about uh, monitoring relaxation, monitoring unconsciousness, monitoring nociception. Are -hmm. there other kind of subcategories that you think deserve monitoring as well? So I guess, you know, and so obviously, you know, it it goes without saying, obviously all the physiological monitoring that we we already do, heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturation, those sorts of things. Well, I just took those as a given. We'll just take, we'll just state state that as such, right? I agree. Um, And and the other part is, is amnesia. And, and we don't really have a good monitor for that. And it's one of these things where I guess the way I think about it conceptually, if I, have EEG patterns that are consistent with your being profoundly unconscious. And I know that information processing in the brain is sufficiently impaired, then I'm inferring that you're also amnestic. Right. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Right. Is there, is it, could you, is there any reason to doubt that uh, in your experience? I mean, is there times when you might have someone, you know, with a nearly isoelectric EEG, but who does not have amnesia? No, in a state like that, no. And I think the, but, but, but it's a, it gets to be one of these philosophical questions that people ask all the time. You know, well, they want to say, well, the person, just because they couldn't respond, they could have been processing the information and you not read it and you not, and you not appreciate it. I mean, that, that, that's a, you know, a common sort of scenario that I hear quite often. And so that's why what we've tried to do is, and, and I'll be frank. Consciousness is a very challenging question, and I don't know how the various parts of the brain come together to generate consciousness. That's a very challenging question. There are a lot of people working on that. What I do think is possible is to make statements about brain states that you can observe in the EEG in which the person is with extremely high probability not conscious. And that's what we need. And that, and that will get us a long way into a very principled, you know, way of using neuroscience to practice anesthesia. So let's just start from the bottom. So if I put you in an isoelectric EEG, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be conscious. Right. All right. And then we can go even further because we've done these sorts of studies in rats, just a little bit in humans, and also now more recently in non-human primates. When you look at these very deep brain states like isoelectric states or birth suppression or when you have very, very large slow oscillations on the EEG, the neurons across multiple parts of the brain are firing very sparsely. Like they're firing every couple of seconds and they're firing in a way so that they can't align. So if area A needs to communicate with area B 
and the neurons have to fire in phase in order to do that, that gets to be very, very difficult for them to do when the slow oscillations are there. So, so in other words, I, I can, one of the things that we've done is, you know, we've done empirical work in the operating room to sort of learn what the various brain states are, excuse me, what the various patterns that are associated with the actions of the, the various anesthetics. And then we've come back and studied those and model systems, and sometimes those model systems even in humans, to try to understand what neurons were doing. Because we think that a key way in which the brain communicates is neurons talking to other neurons. And if the, when those states are present, the neurons' ability to communicate with each other is highly impaired, then I feel very comfortable inferring unconsciousness. Right. So and that's to say that I, I think that we can infer unconsciousness in a very reliable way, even though we haven't gotten to the state of entirely understanding how consciousness is produced. Right. That makes sense. So the EEG uh, gives us a, a, at least as best as we have, and a pretty reliable, we think, mm-hmm. um, way to get a feel for unconsciousness. And then also, uh, you know, along with that, at least by inference, amnesia. Exactly. And, and, and just to elaborate on that a little bit, because what, what I found out, what I've come to appreciate over the last about mm, 10 years or so that we've been working on this, is that the EEG under anesthesia is the strongest EEG signal there is. Um, you know, EEG is used in a lot of contexts for research, for clinical purposes, and even, you know, for, um, you know, for just sort of health monitoring in general or to, you know, you know, these, 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 um, these EEG devices which have been, been created to help you meditate or to maybe to help you to monitor your sleep or what have you. And if you look at all of those situations which the EEG is used, there's a lot of artifact. There's movement artifact. And one of the things which is really apparent as soon as the drugs take effect and someone becomes unconscious or they, as they're transitioning to becoming unconscious, the muscle artifact and movement artifact is pretty much gone. That's one thing. And the other thing is that because the drugs produce these very, very large oscillations and just, you know, the the size really does matter here. You know, your oscillations may be about five microvolts when you're awake in the gamma band and they go to become like 20 to 50 microvolts in like the alpha band or the slow oscillation bands when you're anesthetized. And those oscillations are much larger than they are in any other setting that the EEGs use, they're much larger, and they're, they're essentially noise-free. Hmm. So we have a high SNR signal, the highest SNR signal for which the EEG is used, and we as anesthesiologists use the EEG the least. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. I think the, the way most people who are in our audience are going to be familiar with any sort of monitoring of uh, even related to EEG is going to be with the BIS monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, not, though, just an EEG uh, monitor. It uses a proprietary algorithm. So tell me a little bit about how BIS works and whether you think that's a, a reasonable way to monitor. See, I, I don't think it's a reasonable way to monitor. I think, you know, it begins with the idea of just having a proprietary algorithm because what the proprietary algorithm has done, it makes, us, it, makes it impossible for us to really understand what it is doing. So it, it, it's impeded our progress in understanding you know, the information which is in the EEG. Having said that, what I'll say is that the, the fact that you can build even an approximate algorithm and make an inference about how unconscious someone in, how unconscious someone is speaks to what I was just saying earlier, which is 
the signal is so strong that even an approximate technique is going to give you, you know, some sort of answer which is going to be reasonable some fraction of the time because the signal is so strong. The transitions from high frequencies down to low frequencies is very systematic, and any algorithm that you use is going to give you some insight into that. BIS was actually set up. It stands for it's based on what's called the bispectral index, uh, or the or the bispectrum, excuse me. And what the bispectrum is is it's an it's a way of looking at oscillations in a signal and asking the question, how tightly are they coupled? So imagine I take frequency one, I have frequency two, and I ask, how tightly is frequency one coupled to frequency two? Mm-hmm. And in particular, it looks at what's called what we'll call nonlinear coupling, and just a, a little bit of a little bit of uh, trigonometry. So suppose you have one frequency. You have one waveform. Omega one is like cosine of omega one. So you have a sine wave at, at omega one. Then you have a sine wave at omega two. You have these two oscillations. Now, let's say they have a nonlinear interaction. They don't sum. They, they interact nonlinearly. So the, so the simplest way something can, two waves like that can interact, interact nonlinearly is you just multiply them together, multiply one by the other. Now, if we just added them together, what we'd have found would have been just in our spectrogram, we would have found that there was a signal at one frequency and a signal at, at the other frequency in our spectrogram, you know, when we break it, break the EEG down into its various frequencies and we look at the amplitudes. If you multiply two sine waves together, you're going to get signal both at the base frequencies, but you're also going to get, you're also going to get signal at omega one minus omega two and omega one plus omega two. And that's just the old law of cosines that we learned when we did trigonometry, you know, back in high school. Sure. All right. So then, if, 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 so then what, what you do is if you have these nonlinear actions and they're very important and very strong, by looking at these triplets of, of, of uh, amplitudes, if you would, you're going to get some notion of how strongly one frequency is coupled to the other. And what we found is that, and what we found is you don't need all those calculations to really infer the state of the patient under anesthesia. You can get, you can get essentially all the information that is in the bispectrum with just the spectrum, just doing a simple frequency decomposition, you know, well computed, a frequency decomposition uh, of, of the signal. In other words, showing a display of what are the amplitudes of the various signal components as a function of frequency. Okay. And that's looking, like you said, at the transition from the resting or the awake state to the uh, unconscious state and the uh, increase in um, uh, amplitude and decrease in frequency? Exactly. And then with that, and then as you keep the drugs there, you keep the drug running, let's say the infusion, or you keep the, you know, you have the person, you maintain them, uh, you keep them breathing, you know, one of the inhaled ethers, sevoflurane, isoflurane, or whatever, the oscillations stay there. And so, and when you turn the drug off, you'll basically see the oscillations dissipate. So, right. so, so you can watch this in real time. And what, what, so, so there, there are basically three principal things. 
um, just to sort of state them explicitly. The EEG pattern changes very specifically with, with a very, in a very specific way with drug dose. As you increase the dose, you'll see the oscillations change in a very systematic way. And drugs in the same class will have patterns that are the same. And, and we can go over some of the mechanistic reasons why that's the case. And then the third thing is the oscillations change very systematically with age. Now, so if they're at least in our framework, at least the way I like to think about it, if there are at least three things that you should be thinking about if you're trying to infer from the EEG what the patient's level of unconsciousness is, if I take all that information and I put it on a scale between 0 and 100, I'm losing a lot of information, and that's what's happening with the BIS. Right, and the, is the BIS also taking into account more than just EEG? Does it use, I think, some EMG as well or, or movement, or is, is that involved, or we don't know? I think what it does, see, well, see, this is, this is, again, you know, your guess is as good as, my, as good as mine because it's a proprietary algorithm, right? Right. So this is, so, so we, we shouldn't be having discussions like this when we're trying to not only do science, but also use the science to take care of patients. Yeah, that makes, it, that makes it, a lot of sense. It, it's just a conversation we just shouldn't have. Right. We should know. We should know what we're dealing with. If we, we're, we should, if we're we should know patient. what we're doing with. And why should we be running around, you know, asking companies to, you know, to tell us, you know, how their algorithms work, those sorts of things. If we're going to be using them to take care of patients are things which should just be made readily available to us. So, so, and, and here's, here, here's an analogy, right? I mean, you, and I, you know, I think there's this perception that the EEG is so complex that it's hard to understand, so it had to be simplified. And what I've found is just the opposite. The EEG under anesthesia is the strongest EEG signal there is. Right. And it actually explains why even approximate algorithms like BIS or some of these other indices can give you information which is which can be useful because the signal is so strong. So let's say folks out there think, all right, this sounds great. You know, I, I, I forget the BIS. I want to learn how to do what you're saying. I want to learn how to look at the EEG readout and uh, you know make my own inferences about depth of anesthesia. How can people do that? Or is there how do, how do, how would you tell someone to go about being able to do that on their own? Both in terms of how do they gain the skill to do the reading, and then what kind of monitor do they need to be able to do it? So, in terms of being able to gain the skill, so we've done a number of you know we've published a number of papers, and also we now have um, you know a website which, you know, you can go through this free CME. They're like YouTube tutorials, five-minute tutorials on various parts of this work that, you know, you can go to and just basically go through these exercises and learn how to use the EEG the way I'm suggesting. You know, how does it change with different drug classes? How does it change with age? How do adults, you know, excuse me, how do older patients differ from, you know, kids? All of these are examples that we've covered in the, you know, in our in these examples on our website and we're, and we're going to, we'll be putting more of these up there. And the IRS was very helpful to us in helping us to, and also Mass General Hospital in helping us sponsor free CME for people who wanted to do that. So that, that's the, the, those are available now we're, and we're continually adding to that to, to teach people how to read the EEG. And that website is EEG for anesthesia at IARS.org. And we'll put that in the show notes. And then the other thing is, 
So you need a monitor that is going to display for the EEG as well as the uh, it's going to display the raw signal, the raw EEG signal as well as the um, as well as the spectrogram. So you can see the frequency decomposition. And and I'll, I'll just be frank with you, you know, just in the, in the spirit of full disclosure, we've worked with Massimo on some of these on some of these uh, on these algorithms, what have you, and, and the, the new Massimo monitors actually use our algorithms. But if you have any, if you have any, if you have a monitor, an EEG monitor that shows you the raw EEG and the spectrogram in real time, you can do what I'm talking about here. Okay. And those, are those pretty widely available? Um, there are at least four or five, four or five companies that are producing these now. Okay. And is it, does it look like a BIS strip? Does it go across the forehead? What, what does the monitor it, look like? Usually, usually the electrodes are still frontal EEG, you know, maybe four, maybe four to six contacts that are placed on the head, depending upon whether or not they're lateral, bilateral or, or unilateral. And um, with that, you can, you can infer pretty reliably what the patient's anesthetic state is. Okay. So you... You get you put these monitors on, so four to six leads along the forehead, probably you know to temple, and then you uh, have a monitor that shows you two things: the raw data and the spectrogram, as you said. And the spectrogram, my understanding from what you said, is that that is a breakdown that tells you different types of waves. Is that right? Right. So what it does is, so you have a signal that comes in, and the signal is made up of. Uh, you know, several different, uh, I'll just talk about two of them. Let's say I'm giving you propofol to be very specific. I'm giving you propofol and propofol the, in a young person, let's say a young adult, 18 to 35, has an oscillation, which is a very large low frequency oscillation, meaning something between about 0.1 to 4 cycles per second or hertz, and an oscillation that's somewhere between about 10 to 15 cycles per second. And the second oscillation is called an alpha oscillation. The first is called either slow or slow or slow delta oscillation. So there are these two oscillations. So you can see this pretty clearly when you're looking at the waveform. You can you can see it in the raw EEG. What's nice about the spectrogram is it sorts it out and it shows you the it shows you that there's a 10 hertz band. And it shows you there's another band between 0.1 to let's say four cycles per second. So you can actually see the signature very, very clearly. And if okay. you, so, so it makes it possible to really um, understand, to, to understand what the frequency decomposition is, because it, it may be the case that, um, you, you know, what you may count in the raw waveform might be a little bit inaccurate and the spectrogram actually quantifies it for you a little bit better. But 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 they can use them. You can use them together as a reality check to make sure what you're seeing in one is consistent and what you're seeing is consistent with what you're seeing in the other. Okay. Um, and is there you know people are used to with abyss. Uh, and again, we've talked about some of the reasons uh, why this is, may not be the best monitor to use, but what people are used to is, uh, oh, I can target a number, right? 40 to 60. I look up there. If it's 40 to 60, I'm happy. If it's over 60, I turn up my anesthesia. If it's below 40, I turn it down. So when you're looking at the actual raw data in the spectrogram, uh, and this may be the kind of things people learn in the tutorials you're mentioning, but are there certain, are you shooting for, you know, a certain, um, uh, a certain amount of a certain type of wave or a certain amplitude or a certain frequency, right. something that tells you, uh, you know, this is a, this is likely an unconscious patient. 
Right. So that, that, that's exactly what's happening. So let, let's just take two cases. So let's take propofol. So I, let's say I'm doing a TIVA. I'm running a propofol infusion. So what I would look and let, and we'll make it straightforward. Let's assume it's a, a young person in, you know, in, in her mid-20s. So I'm running a propofol infusion. And what I'm looking to see is a very strong alpha oscillation, a very strong slow delta oscillation, those two. When those two are there, I know that the person is profoundly unconscious. And I know that from, from studies we've done, you know, not just because I've just done this multiple times in the operating room, but we've actually studied it in volunteers, having them, giving them increasing doses of propofol, and then on a, on a, every four seconds, having them answer a behavioral question to see if they're responding and then doc documenting what the dynamics were like when they were losing consciousness, when they were unconscious, when they recovered consciousness. So, so in other words, we, and then, and then we've gone even further, as I said, in some human studies as well as non-human primates and also rodent studies to do very similar dosing of propofol and then looking to see what the neurons were doing when these same patterns are appearing. So, so, in other words, the fact that I'm telling you about this pattern is backed up. It's not just because we've looked at this, you know, a large number of times empirically in the operating room. We've also studied the dynamics of the pattern in experimental settings as well as with mathematical modeling. Okay. So, you can tell from seeing that pattern that you mentioned that a, you know, 20-year-old woman on a propofol infusion, you see that pattern, you know she's profoundly unconscious. How about... You know, is, is there something that would then happen that would you make you say, oh, you know, now she's too unconscious. Uh, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm ever too deep. I, I should dial back my propofol drip. Exactly. So let's say, you know, I, I have her on, you know, let's say, you know, I have her on 100 mics per kilo per minute and, you know, everything seems to be fine. And then, you know, I, I didn't change the infusion rate at all. And then, you know, the, the, the surgeons are doing sort of very, very, you know, delicate manipulation. So the nociceptive stimulation or the, you know, is maybe a lot, a little less. And so now she starts to drift from the patterns that I just said, the alpha oscillations and slow oscillations. She drifts into a pattern of burst suppression, let's say. So where you, you see a flat period, then burst, flat period, then burst. So now she's probably deeper than she needs to be in order to, she, she's certainly unconscious, but we had her unconscious at, at, you know, at a, at a different, at a, at a, at a different EEG pattern. So what we can do then is we can just turn the propofol down. Maybe it's time to turn it down to 90 or maybe 80 mics per kilo per minute. Okay. And then we could go the other way. So let's say all of a sudden we had her nicely anesthetized and, uh, you know, the surgeons start doing some more manipulations. They put in the retractors. They really pull the abdominal wall apart. So we see the heart rate and blood pressure go up. And with that, we now start to see the alpha oscillations move up to higher frequencies and the slow oscillations starting to disappear, in which this suggests that she's coming too. She, she's waking up. So in that case, I know that, like we talked about earlier, maybe I need to give her some an antinociceptive, maybe some fentanyl, increase the remifentanil infusion if we're using something like that, or give her a bolus of dilaudid, and then possibly as well, you know, increase the, the rate of the propofol infusion. Okay, so that makes, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, and now, 
What about, you mentioned, okay, eat, you know, this is the example you gave is a propofol infusion. Uh, you said that different agents will have their own patterns. So you can obviously, I would assume, learn to uh, say, all right, if I'm using sevoflurane, I know what to look for. If I'm using, you know, isoflurane, I know what to look for. If I'm using propofol, I know what to look for. What about combinations? Have we have we characterized that? If I'm using, let's say, propofol and ketamine, for example, do I know uh, what that will produce and what to look for in terms of to tell me if someone's both, you know, too light or too deep? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so we do now, and so we, we published a paper back in 2015 in which you know, it's it's uh, clinical and uh, um, clinical electrocephalography for the anesthesiologist. So then we call that part one. And we're working on part two now, and part two is going to deal with the combinations. At the time, I hadn't had as much experience with the combinations, but I can tell you very reliably how to use, how to read the combinations of drugs. And, and there, there's basically a, um, there's, a, there's a hierarchy. So um, we usually use a drug like a propofol, a, a, a strategy like a propofol infusion or let's say you know, one of the inhaled gases, let's say like sevoflurane, to maintain unconsciousness, all right? So now let's say you add in remifentanil to that, all right? So you really won't see the effect of the remifentanil in the propofol, the sevoflurane uh, patterns because they're masked by the, it's, it's masked by the propofol and sevoflurane. Where you will see the effect is that if you try to titrate down the propofol, titrate down the sevoflurane, you can probably do that fairly substantially because in addition to being an antinociceptive drug, the remifentanil also decreases arousal. Mm-hmm. So you see the effect not in the pattern on the EEG, but the, in, the, in that you can decrease the propofol infusion rate or the sevoflurane flow rate because the the remifentanil helps you help helps maintain unconscious, but you can't appreciate this unless you turn the drug until you attempt to turn the propofol down. Right. And what about ketamine? Does ketamine falsely elevate your, uh, you know, um, we think of it as, uh, being helpful for neurophysiologists during, for example, neuromonitoring, because it will increase, uh, the amplitude, right. Um, and decrease latency. Is that, uh, confusing uh, when you're looking at, let's say you're, you would look at your propofol drip and now you've got ketamine going, will that, or it just is going to give you a different wave. And as long as you know what to look for, you're fine. No, it, it, it is. So again, so in addition to teaching, uh, you know, these various patterns, like I've been, we've been discussing, we also teach the neurophysiology behind how they're produced. Okay. So let's just dissect ketamine a little bit. So what happens with ketamine, and this has been known for years, the neurophysiologists worked this out, you know, several years ago. Um, low doses of ketamine actually create an active EEG or they create an active brain. And that's because at low doses, what ketamine does is it inhibits inhibitory interneurons. All right. So let's go back to propofol for a second. One of the way propofol works, it makes the inhibitory neurons more effective, you know, because it it works by enhancing GABAergic inhibition. And so the interneurons are much more effective. They're better at inhibiting the, the pyramidal neurons, and that inhibition shows up as these oscillations. In the case of ketamine, at low doses, it does just the opposite. So 
you block the inhibitory interneurons, now the pyramidal neurons are quite active, and you see this very active brain state just like you're talking about. Okay. And so at low doses, at, when you see this pattern, which, is oscill which are oscillations between about 20 to 30 cycles per second, up in the, you know, the high beta or low gamma range, this is actually when you see, when you, you see hallucinations in patients. Now, let's say, you did a, let's say you ran a ketamine infusion or you did a ketamine induction. What you'll see there is you'll see these alpha, excuse me, you'll see these, these high frequency like beta oscillations or low gamma oscillations interspersed with large slow oscillations. So you'll see gamma for about four seconds, and then you'll see a slow oscillation for about four seconds. Gamma for about four seconds, and, and then the slow oscillation. And what's happening there is once the dose has gotten high enough, the ketamine not only blocks the NMDA receptors on inhibitory interneurons, it blocks them on the pyramidal neurons as well. Hmm. So, so, you, so if you were to do like a, like a ketamine anesthetic, that's the pattern that you would see on the EEG. Now, if you're running a ketamine infusion, you're running a ketamine infusion, let's say like with propofol, what's, what happens is, remember how we said propofol had that 10 hertz oscillation? Right. Ketamine has like a 30 hertz oscillation. They end up compromising at about 20 hertz. And that makes sense because they're both competing for these interneurons. Sure. Ketamine, propofol is trying to use them and ketamine is trying to inhibit them. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, okay, so this I mean, this sounds great. I mean, I think that, you know, um, it sounds to me like something that can be learned, something that can be measured, and that is probably more accurate and for sure more transparent than what we're currently using, which is, uh, you know, MAC for inhaled anesthetics and BIS for TIVAs. So, um so when you think about the future, you know, where are we headed? Are we, do you think that in 20 years, 50 years, you know, uh, is this going to be just routine? Everyone will get their, you know, their whatever at the time the blood pressure monitoring is, they'll get their pulse ox and they'll get their EEG monitor and this will just be a, a standard ASA monitor? I, you know, I'd like to think that would be the case and, you know, hopefully, you know, even sooner than that because, um you know, while we've learned a lot, I'm not going to suggest that we figure out all the nuances of, you know, using, you know, of reading the EEG of anesthetized patients, but we've certainly figured out enough for people to use this in practice and I think make much better decisions than they would, could make using an index such as BIS or, you know, one of the other indices produced by one of the other monitors. I, I think that, and so this is, so literally in, since 2011, all the cases that I've done and I've used the EEG, and we've actually offloaded the data, so we built up a large database. So we've not only done, I've not only done the case, we've gone back and like studied them to, to, to really understand the structure and what have you. And as I said, we've also done experiments to, and to further investigate this. So I think that it's, it's, a, it's something which can be put into practice and become a standard, you know, actually in the next few years or so. I mean, that's the sort of thing which I'd like to see. Well, that's great. I hope we see that too. Um, this has been fantastic. Uh, is there anything that we didn't cover that you think we should touch on before we uh, move on? Yeah, the, the one thing that I just wanted to mention is that um, I just want to just be sure I said the website correctly because it's EEG for anesthesia at IARS.org. The IARS was very helpful to us in setting this up. I just wanted to mention that. So EEG for anesthesia at IARS.org. Great. All right. Thanks for clarifying that. We'll definitely put the correct one in the show notes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
Great. Well, you know, I think it's been a ton of great information, and uh, I'm sure I speak for uh, many in the audience when I say we're all excited to see um, when this becomes more widely available and when we get to to learn it. I, I will check out the website, and I'm sure many others will too. Um, but I want to turn now to the portion of our program where we make random recommendations for our audience, and uh, you know, it's the holiday time. People may have some free time on their hands. So, uh, Dr. Brown, what would you recommend for people uh, if they've got some time and looking for something to do? Oh well, that's well. I what I would uh, we we were talking about plays before the uh, you know before we came on the air. Yeah, and uh, you know my favorite play of all time is like is Man of La Mancha. Ah, so if you know if if I had a spare minute moment when I have a spare moment of the holidays, I think I'm gonna you know find that on YouTube or something and enjoy it. That sounds like a great recommendation. Um, and I, uh, I would second it. Um, a, a completely different topic uh, on, for, for mine, I will say uh, that uh, a, an applicant, actually, someone applying to our residency program, uh, recommended they, they had listed in their hobbies that they were um, into board games. And I told them, you know, I've been trying to find board games to play with my kids, but my, my kids are eight, six, and, and well, there's a baby. She's not playing the board games, but they eight and the six-year-old. And it's hard. It's hard to find board games that you know, you can have have fun playing with. There's plenty you can play with the kids that age, but that you can, as an adult, actually enjoy. And this applicant recommended a game called Pandemic. So uh, it's a cooperative game. Uh, and I thought that didn't sound so fun at first, but we got it, played it with the kids, and actually it's a blast. And what you, it's, it's um, you know, uh, uh, you play all on a kind of the same team. Uh, you each have your own kind of things that you're doing, but you're working together to try to save the world from the diseases that are trying to take it over. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. And because you're playing with the kids, uh, you know, you can help them and it's still, it's still all in, in, in kind of part of the game. And so it's, it's actually a lot of fun. So if you're looking for something, uh, to play over the holidays with your family, especially if you have kids who are just getting to that age of wanting to play board games, but maybe not quite ready to directly compete with you, try pandemic. It's a ton of fun. That's a great um, suggestion. I'll have to I'll have to follow up on that. Thank you. Yeah, I would. I highly recommend it. Uh, and then uh, we actually have a great guest um, recommendation, though not so random. Uh, but um, I got a great email from uh, Thomas Whitmer, uh, who is a dental anesthesia resident, and he said, you know, he's enjoyed hearing about the different specialties in anesthesia and the different kind of uh, practice providers. We did some talks on, you know, CRNAs and AAs and uh, even veterinary anesthesia. And he said, you know, that he's doing dental anesthesia. Uh, this was not something I had heard about, but it turns out that you can uh, be a dentist. You can do your dental res uh, your dental training, your dental school, and then do a dental anesthesia residency, which is, you know, he describes it as very similar to, uh, a right to what we do in, in, uh, medical anesthesia. It's three years of training after dental school. They do a lot of the same kind of cases we do, but they focus on dental, obviously, and then on pediatrics and special needs patients, because they'll be doing some dentistry, obviously with those populations potentially. And then when they're done after three years, uh, they really, they can still practice dentistry, but they're not supposed to do their own anesthesia. So that's not the point. The point is that they can be an anesthesiologist for other dentists who need anesthesia for the procedures they're doing. Uh, and that's uh, Thomas's goal. He uh, is happy to be in touch with anyone who may be out there who's thinking about dental school or who's in dental school and interested in anesthesia. Um, and so I'll put his uh, email on the website. And then he also put me in touch with his program director at Jacoby, which is his program in New York, um, in the Bronx. And, uh, 
uh, he uh, and she, Amana Saragi, is his program director, and she said she'd be happy to be in touch with anyone interested too. And so I'll put her email and his. If people are interested in learning more about dental anesthesia, uh, I thought it was really interesting that this is out there and that despite being an anesthesiologist, I had not heard of it. We'll put some, uh, some of their videos and links to some, uh, some websites on the show notes as well. Um, yeah, in fact, uh, last year, uh, two, uh, yeah, two years ago, I, sp- I gave the keynote address at the, at the ASDA, the American Society of Dental Anesthesiologists. There you go. So you knew about this, Emory. You were ahead of me. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, well, very cool. Uh, very cool that it's out there, and um, and I hope folks uh, check it out as well. So, Emory, I want to, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to uh, learn from you, and uh, I'm sure folks will really appreciate everything you had to say. My pleasure, Jed. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. All right. That was fantastic. I hope you learned as much as I did. Check out the website, com. You can leave a comment. Let others know what you thought. Everyone can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and the podcast is at ACRAC Podcast. You can also join the conversation on the ACRAC Facebook group. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you are interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also leave a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and are already patrons. Thank you, as always, to... Dr. Brian Park, and newly to April Liu from McMaster University in Canada. She's a med student there and doing some really fantastic new outlines for some of the episodes. So thanks to both Dr. Park and April for doing that work, and hopefully we'll get outlines for all the episodes before too long. Thank you, as always, also to Dr. Dennis Quo. He makes the original ACRAC music, and his website, which is really great to check out, is studymusicproject.com. Last but not least, a big thank you to the one and only Kimia Kashkuli, who is our ACRAC intern and does amazing work with the social media, among many other things. For all of you out there wishing you the very best holiday season here in the holidays of 2019, as we head into 2020, I'm excited to see what the new year has to offer and what we will uh, have coming when we have our first, in 2020, live ACRAC show. That's right, live ACRAC show in front of a live audience. That'll be on April 24th. I've already heard from some of you interested in coming. Thanks for writing. We will be providing more details as it gets closer. If you are interested in coming, if you're in the Baltimore area, it'll be held at Johns Hopkins. Or if you want to come into town for the event, you are welcome to. Um, It should be a lot of fun. Uh, It'll be at 6 p.m. on April 24th at Johns Hopkins, and we'll give you more information. Again, if you're interested in coming, just shoot an email to ACRAC at ACRAC.com. Let us know, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you. Thank you to everyone. Thanks for a wonderful year. Uh, Have a fantastic holiday and new year, and we'll see you in 2020. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Emery Brown, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.